Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we tell a tale of two Terminators. Sebastian and I am here with Sean Farina. Howdy, listeners. Sean is the captain of the Malcontent Media ship, the flagship for which this podcast proudly flies under. I have had the pleasure of podcasting with Sean for our Batman Begins Patreon podcast. I wanted to invite him back for one of our main feed podcasts to discuss. A Tale of Two Terminators. But before we get into the movies, Sean, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of your personal history with the Terminator franchise? Uh, Absolutely. Terminator 2 was the first rated R movie I ever saw in a theater. Nice. Uh, My old man took me to to see it at the Cinerama Dome back in the like pre-Arclight days. It was the first time I'd been to the Dome also. And I think I had seen the first one at that point. Uh, I think I've, like, caught bits of it on TV, because my folks always had, like, all the pay cable stuff. Yeah, obviously, they're both classics. Uh, love them both dearly. You know, they're both very different movies. The first one is pretty much a monster movie, and the second one is, like, a much more, you know, thoughtful in its sci-fi elements and, you know, more of a straight-ahead action thriller. Yes. And... I didn't see the third one for a very long time, until just a couple years ago. Uh, I was, of course, aware of it, but uh, Saw Salvation, which is interesting, and then saw Dark Fate in the theater, and just recently only finally got around to watching Genesis to record this podcast. That is wonderful. I am so glad that I could uh, bestow that gift upon you. (laughs) I would say I am generally a fan of the franchise. Whenever there's a Terminator movie, I will go to see it. I really enjoyed the first one, which was, of course, directed by James Cameron and pretty much kickstarted his career. Sorry, Piranha 2, The Spawning. After that, he made Aliens, which I loved, and then he made The Abyss, which I also liked, and then eventually he came back to the Terminator franchise with Terminator 2. And when Terminator 2 came out, I was sort of a jaded college boy at that point, and 
I didn't love it as much as everybody else did. I kind of found Edward Furlong to be irritating. And the fact that the Terminator was now a good guy seemed sort of lame to me. But I have come around to sort of appreciating the skill in which the film is made. And I've come more around to it as time has gone on. But I just didn't love it as much as everybody else did. Of course, I thought the liquid Terminator were super cool at the time and all that. But it just wasn't really my movie. And then I am surprisingly kind of a fan of Terminator 3. I know you would probably disagree with that assessment, but I think there's actually a lot of fun elements to the movie. Of course, it is a shameless rehash. Do you really need Terminator 3 when you have Terminator 2? No. But I do think there is a pretty great truck sequence through downtown L.A. in which a bunch of shit gets wrecked that I think is actually kind of impressive. Rodney always talks about, oh, show me one scene in this movie that makes it worth watching. And I do feel that you can show somebody that scene of Terminator 3 and say, this is why you'd watch Terminator 3, for this scene. And I also sort of like the depressing ending. And I prefer Nick Stahl as John Connor to Edward Furlong. I think he's an upgrade. I would agree with you there. That's fair. Um, Edward Furlong is, you know, just fine. And it helps that he's, you know, younger and at an age where, you know, kids are whiny and annoying anyway. Uh, but I also definitely agree that those are the two highlights of the movie and like really the, the two reasons to see them. Yeah. Other than that, it is, of course, as you said, just like a sorry attempt to, I would say, sorry attempt to uh, try to recapture the, the magic of Terminator 2. It was interesting the course that it kind of set the rest of the franchise on because, you know, they tried to do T2 again. It didn't work. And then everything since then has been, well, I wouldn't say everything since then, but Salvation and Genesis were both, they seemed really desperate to find new ground to tread uh, in the franchise. And it led to some, you know, interesting decisions that I, I don't think really panned out in either of those movies, but definitely feels like we're set in motion by Terminator 3, not really landing with audiences. Yeah, it's too bad because I feel that Terminator Salvation had a real opportunity to take the franchise into new and interesting directions. They had Christian Bale as John Connor. You can't really ask for a better John Connor than that in 2009, especially. And I appreciated that it was going to take place in the post-apocalyptic future, and it wasn't going to follow the sort of template of robot chasing people. But unfortunately, it was directed by McGee, and I think that is the real problem there with that film. I think it's just not very well directed. It feels sort of hacked together, and it stars uh, Sam Unworthington, the least <laughs> worthy action star of the late aughts, <laughs> in a pretty big role. I remember it was originally going to have this different ending, and I forget what it was, but the internet found out about it or something, so they had to change it. That always ruins everything. So, unfortunately, while I would agree with you that like Terminator Salvation had the most potential, I feel like it's almost the most disappointing because it does not achieve that potential. 
and it really feels like it has a chance to in the first, I'd say, 40 minutes or so. Definitely. You know, and they just did a sorry job of burying the lead on Sam Worthington actually being a Terminator. And then once John Connor shows up and just, you know, tries to take over the movie, which apparently happens largely because of reshoots, because they were like, oh, well, we have Christian Bale. Like, why wouldn't people want more of him? Mm-hmm. And then the, the heart transplant at the ending is just the dumbest thing that's happened in any Terminator movie including Genesis. I have to agree with you there. It's really dumb. The whole ending just it feels like such a whiff for whatever reason. It's just a really boring climax and they try to bring Arnold into it as a digital terminator and ugh, I'm not a fan. Yeah, they have yet to well, I'd say in the the very beginning of Dark Fate, the de-aging they did for all three of the the actors uh was pretty good. But yeah, C.G. Arnold in Salvation and Genesis are both absolutely garbage. Well, why don't we get into talking about Terminator Genesis from 2015. Now, the budget of this movie was $155 million. It ended up grossing $89 million domestically, which is pretty bad. Worldwide, it actually pulled in $440 million, so it more or less eked out its budget, but the critical response was really, really bad. And I think it was very much viewed as a failure. They wanted to kickstart another trilogy of Terminator movies with this, which is what they say whenever they put out a Terminator movie or any sort of reboot. It's always like, we've got a trilogy in mind. And then it fails. And then we never see that trilogy. (laughs) Originally, it was being developed with Justin Lin of the Fast and Furious franchise, but he wisely stepped away from it to go back to the Fast and Furious franchise and to do a Star Trek or whatever. Eternally grateful for that decision. Yes. And it ended up in the hands of Alan Taylor, who is probably known best for directing some of the most action-heavy episodes of Game of Thrones. He also directed Thor The Dark World, which I think is one of the few legitimately terrible Marvel movies. So his track record wasn't necessarily sterling coming into this. Apparently, he was so depressed by how this movie turned out and how the whole thing went down that he didn't want to get involved with big-budget filmmaking after this point and has sort of gone back to smaller films. He recently directed The Many Saints of Newark, Sopranos spinoff movie, which was fine, but sort of unremarkable. So, yeah, we have ourselves a kind of mediocre director here at the helm. Yeah, which is really disappointing because, you know, even before, you know, he was rocketed in uh, on Game of Thrones... He did some great stuff for The Sopranos and uh, Deadwood also. He directed, like, the first episode of Deadwood where the show really gets its footing, the fourth episode where, well, I won't spoil it for anybody who wants to watch Deadwood because it's one of the greatest shows ever. Agreed. Yeah, he he just doesn't bring that to the big screen, sadly. When I walked out of Thor The Dark World, my reaction was, well, they sure made their days. It felt like what happens when you brought a TV director to film in the kind of pre you know new golden age of tv yeah like when you watch primal fear and it's like you know oh gregory hoblin's a tv director and again they sure made their days Mm -hmm. yeah so too bad i think it just goes to show the level of commitment to this franchise that you get a jobber like him on this like if you really want to restart the terminator franchise you want to get somebody really good and i feel like this was indicative of the fact that this movie was going to probably be mediocre. 
even more of an indication that this movie is going to be mediocre is that it stars Jai Courtney, who, other than Sam Worthington, is probably one of the most mediocre actors who have appeared in the last 10 to 15 years. They are both absolute charisma vacuums. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, Perfectly put. Yeah, it's weird that they just decided to go from like an even more stone-faced wooden actor after working with Sam Worthington. Stone-faced wooden Australian actor. That's right. Which actually, when he, I don't know, maybe it's just when he has to suppress his accent because, you know, while Suicide Squad is garbage, uh, he is a lot of fun as Captain Boomerang. It's the one time it actually feels like he's you know, an actor. I feel like he's the kind of actor that could probably be good if he was taken out of the leading man role, which is right. true of what you're saying about Suicide Squad. Like, he's probably a pretty decent villain or just kind of a more character actor guy, but because he's got this sort of dude bro good looks, they were really trying to put him into leading man roles, and I think that he just really can't cut it because, as you said, he is something of a charisma vacuum. Worse still is he's playing Kyle Reese, who was originally played by the great Michael Bean in the first Terminator, and so we're expected to look at this guy and somehow see Michael Bean, and I ain't seeing it. This is definitely not the... Um step between Anton Yelchin and Michael Bean that, you know, we were hoping for. And that's certainly the, the studios were hoping for when they decided to cast him. I totally forgot that Anton Yelchin was Kyle Reese in Terminator Salvation. He did a much better job, at least. I felt like he was at least trying to sort of channel Michael Bean, whereas Jai Courtney isn't trying at all. Yeah, well, who knows how much help he was getting from, uh, from Alan Taylor. Ah, uh, man, it's just breaking my heart thinking about Justin Lin doing a Terminator movie now. Somehow that has managed to slip by me. Who knows if it would have turned out good. I mean, they were still starting from this script, so he may not have been able to save it, but it would have at least had a little bit more energy, certainly in the action department, which I think is one of the main drawbacks of this movie, is that the action just isn't all that remarkable. And it's a mess, too. Like, just, like, the sense of geography and, I don't know, almost every action sequence is, like, Wait, so when they're and they're in this parking garage and they entered from over there, but where's where's John Connor coming from and why and uh yeah and again he's he he kills it on the small screen so I I, I don't know where it all goes wrong. Starring as Sarah Connor, we get Amelia Clark also coming in from Game of Thrones. She famously played Daenerys Targaryen. Sort of an odd choice for Sarah Connor just because. I think of Amelia Clark, even though she can kind of do the strong, powerful female thing, she's kind of soft in a way that Linda Hamilton just isn't. They do sort of vaguely look a little bit alike, but it's hard for me to see Amelia Clark here as Sarah Connor. And I don't really feel like she does a terribly great job at it. I don't think she does a bad job with what she was given to work with. I mean, you know, again, especially when she's playing off of Jai Courtney, like, she actually acts like a person who is reacting to what is around her. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she doesn't She doesn't feel like uh, Sarah Connor. She doesn't feel like the Sarah Connor from, you know, either of the Terminator movies. And certainly she's supposed to be more T2 Sarah Connor, but I buy her as, you know, this, this tough action star here, but not as Linda Hamilton, who is breaking kneecaps and threatening to inject bleach into into people to uh, to escape from the uh, the loony bin. I definitely don't see Amelia Clark threatening anybody with a needle full of bleach. I always thought it was sort of <laughs> interesting that 
a few years prior to this movie, we got a television show, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, in which Lena Headey, also from Game of Thrones, played Sarah Connor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is it with Game of Thrones people and Sarah Connor? I wonder if they had some sort of conversation on the set of Game of Thrones about how to play Sarah Connor. Probably not. The big draw for this movie was that they were bringing Arnold Schwarzenegger back as a Terminator. He, as you said was not really in Terminator Salvation. They were trying to sort of move away from that. And I think that maybe the underperformance of that film led the studio execs to think, well, we got to have Arnold. And he was done being governor at this point, And so he was sort of trying to have a little bit of an acting career resurgence. I think that he does a pretty decent job here with what he's given to do. I think he actually brings some decent comedic moments to the movie. He's clearly not the physical presence that he once was, but the character has been sort of toned down to fit that. Unfortunately, I think that later in the movie, when we jump ahead in time, they give him a really bad old man look with this really dumb gray wig that I wasn't a huge fan of. We will <laughs> see on him return to the franchise later as an old man again in... Terminator Dark Fate and they do a much better job I think just with his look but it sort of bugged me that the second half of this movie he kind of looks ridiculous agreed and Genesis is clearly the weaker film on pretty much every level except for one and I believe that is uh doing the old man Terminator thing aside from the look where you know yes hilariously it's like well he has gray hair now but in no other way to look like he's aged 20 some odd years yeah. <laughs> the stuff with with Pops and Sarah Connor is much more engaging than anything that you know Carl is doing in Dark Fate I actually care about their relationship and then in Dark Fate it's you know I guess I'm supposed to be somewhat invested in this idea that he's become a family man and which is obviously patently ridiculous but yeah uh pops is yeah he's, he's their relationship is much more engaging i think he he giving him more to do was the the right move especially bringing him back to the franchise and yeah he is funnier and you know just more fun to watch although i, I do agree that his look was an upgrade in dark fate now the other cast members uh, of note are we get jason clark as john connor we get sort of two versions of this character, which we can get into more as we go into the movie. I do like Jason Clark. I think he's got a great look, and I think he can be pretty effective in roles when he shows up. Not sure I would put him in my top three favorite John Connors, though, but they, that <laughs> might have more to do with what they do with his character than his actual performance. Yeah, what a weird choice. Uh, and again, you know, I feel like it was just them desperate to tread new ground as i said before but yeah making him the villain i don't know did nothing for me jason clark is you know again did a good job with what he had to work with but just what stupidity he had to work with jeez yes this movie is pretty stupid but i will sort of disagree with you in one sense in comparison to dark fate because i have a personal love of what we like to call holy fucking shit movies where just the entire <laughs> concept is just bonkers. I kind of have to give Terminator Genesis a little bit more of, I'd say maybe a rewatchable factor for me personally, just because it's so fucking bonkers. Like the plot of this movie is completely ridiculous and insane. <laughs> and I kind of appreciate it just on that level. Is it good? Oh, hell no. 
but it is crazy. And I kind of love crazy. It was interesting how they, they, they kind of knew what they had in that particular factor uh, when they were marketing the movie. Uh, the first trailer came out and, you know, of course, you see them jumping back into Terminator 1. I was like ready. for. I'm like, this is stupid. But this is like exactly the kind of stupid I will show up for because, you know, at this point, the Terminator franchise, as, you know, a thing I love, is kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Like, I've gotten all the good movies I need out of it, yeah. and they're just going to keep making them, and they're going to be garbage. So I'll show up to be entertained, because, like, my emotional investment in it has been severed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the first trailer, I was in. Uh, I was like, all right, let's take me on this stupid ride back to 1984, and then to the future again, for some reason. But the second trailer showed up, it was like, oh, and now John Connor's a Terminator. And that kind of lost me. And, you know, the movie did, too, in the same way as those events unfolded. Like, I, I was having fun with them jumping back into the first movie. Again, just the sheer stupidity of it. But then, yeah, dude, John Connor was like one step too far for me. Let's talk a little bit about the plot of the movie. We start off in the future and we see our new Kyle Reese, Jai Courtney, and he's part of the resistance and they're fighting in the post-apocalypse. They seem to do a pretty faithful job of sort of recreating what this post-apocalyptic future looks like based upon what we had seen in Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. You know, they've got the laser beams that are sort of purplish or whatever. But we're basically finding out that this group of ragtag rebels have come upon a time machine that the Terminators have made. And now John Connor, as played by uh, Jason Clark, wants Kyle Reese to go into the future to save his mom. Because, of course, he knows that in order for him to be born, Kyle Reese has got to do this. And he's even given Kyle Reese a picture of Sarah Connor to fall in love with, I guess. How did you feel about this opening? It went on for way too long. And the dialogue was just killing me. Uh, I was really had a pretty decent look. As you said, it's a good recreation of the future that we've seen in the other movies. But I was just like bored to tears by this. Just all the back and forth about like, well, who's going to go save Sarah Connor and why you? And that, you know, he had the picture and fell in love with her via this picture and hearing stories about her and all that. that uh, no, sorry. <laughs> The, uh, the look of the time machine I thought was actually pretty cool, because I forget if we... Have we seen it before? Do we do we see it in Salvation? I don't think we did, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, so this is the first time that we see it, and, you know, it has the, you know, the force, the, the sphere shape in the center that, you know, is iconic from every time somebody lands in the past. So that I thought looked pretty cool. But, yeah, everything else about it was, uh, I thought, really boring. They should have been able to knock that out in, like, five minutes, and I'm not sure why they thought I was care I would care that much about, you know, all the, the rambling they do about why it's going to be Kyle Reese. Yeah, it's like, we already know why it's got to be Kyle Reese. Just get to the point. The, the credits go on over this whole sequence, and then into the 1984 stuff, there's still credits going over the screen. I'm like... Just get the credits out of the way already. And it makes you <laughs> yeah. feel like things are taking forever, you know, because you're like, wait, the credits are still rolling. I think it's like 10 <laughs> minutes of screen time. It's a really crazy amount of credits. Definitely not helping the uh, the slog that it already was for me. So right off the bat, we know things are going to be completely nutso because Kyle is in the time machine and he's in the big bubble and being sent back to 1984 to save Sarah Connor. 
And while this is happening, we see this character played by Doctor Who's Matt Smith just come out of the background and like stick his hand into John Connor. You know, what they're setting up here is this agent is some sort of Terminator or something that's going to infiltrate John Connor literally into his brain. And that's why he's going to be the villain later on. But it's just such a weird and clunky plot development and Kyle Reese is like no and then Kyle Reese is like seeing all these flashes of images of a past that he didn't really live so right off the bat I feel like this movie is really setting out to confuse the viewer all the time travel stuff in this is a huge mess one of the great successes of the first two is how what a decent job they do of hand waving all that yeah and unless you're going by 12 monkeys rules where you know everything like basically the timeline is you can travel back in time but everything that happened happened which of course this is the opposite of as timelines are crossing over into each other with memories and they make the the mistake in this movie of just talking about the time travel rules all the goddamn time it's boring every time they bring it up it makes less sense every time they bring it up any any time travel movie should take more of a lesson from james cameron and how he handled all that yeah, and it's funny because I feel like if this movie had come out just five years later, they probably could have finessed it a little bit better because now we are living in the movie multiverse where Marvel and other studios are embracing this idea of multiple timelines and different characters coming in from multiple timelines. And that's essentially what's going on here is that they're saying that, you know, there are these now these alternate realities and these alternate versions of the character. But I don't think they really had the language in 2015 to tackle that. And certainly the Terminator franchise was probably not the place to attempt it. But if they just said, oh, it's a multiverse, now time is branching off in all these different ways, I think that would have been a much clearer and concise way to understand what the hell is going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not, like I said, keep bringing it up, not have john connor later talking about how you know even if i killed you i would still exist because we're exiles from time just like what the fuck are you talking about and later sarah connor is doesn't want to get romantically involved with kyle because then that would mean that they would have john connor who would then turn into evil john connor i guess that's the <laughs> rationalization there for why they can't be together the one part of that i actually enjoyed is just how matter-of-factly uh pops is talking about um whether or not the two of them as he puts it mate in this timeline yeah. to create john connor <laughs> Just a little more of how much more fun Pops is than Carl Yeah, with uh, stuff like that. And I enjoy that she's taught Pops how to smile, and he has this really awful smile that he keeps shooting at people to try to disarm yeah. them, and it's just terrible and unnerving. Kyle Reese even calls him out on that. It's some good moments with Arnold where I think he delivers some subtle comedy. Yeah, that's more of the stupid that like this movie should have been, not beating us over the head with timeline talk and failed timeline plotting. Well, speaking of timeline talk, let's talk a little bit about the 1984 stuff where we are getting a sort of Back to the Future 2 style recreation of Terminator. We start off at the Griffith Park Observatory scene, which you would remember from Terminator. Only the twist on it this time is 
once the naked Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator shows up, de-aged digitally and stuff. I really want to see the uh, the international title of any of these movies be the naked Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator. <laughs> but yeah, the twist on it is once the naked Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator shows up, the aged Pops Terminator shows up to blow him away. And we get a recreation of the scene where he's talking to the punk rockers, quote unquote, Although they are not played by the original actors, Bill Paxton, who was still alive at this time, is not there. It's different actors that don't even really look like the original actors. Pops shows up and takes down the de-aged Terminator, and we find out that he is working in tandem with Sarah Connor to stop the original Terminator from happening. Yeah, again, that's the stupidity I showed up for and, you know, wish that it just kept that kind of fun happening the whole time. Since you brought it up, disappointing that they, they should have given us Bill Paxton, like, somehow. I know. I, if they, like, if he played it and they de-aged him or if they just found somebody who looked like him and it was just jawing, like, as Bill Paxton, like, that that, that would have been fun. But the fact that they didn't even try was, was disappointing. How did you feel about the section that took place in downtown L.A. where we're getting the events from Reese's point of view Again, I think they should have spent less time on it just because Jai Courtney is a, a huge bore. It is what it is. You know, they're giving us the callbacks with the shoes that he wears and the clothes that he steals from the thrift store or whatever. Also introduced here is a new Terminator. It's a liquid Terminator like from Terminator 2. Also, it's a cop like the liquid Terminator from Terminator 2, only the difference here is he's Asian. This section of the movie, the Terminator element, I feel is pretty underwhelming just because it's such a boring kind of rehash of Terminator 2, and this actor isn't given enough to do so that he rates as a cool Terminator in any way. Agreed. Yeah, definitely not bringing Robert Patrick-level presence to uh, to being the T, I don't know, 1000. Maybe it's probably another T-1000. It's a T-1000 for sure. And we're also introduced to the character of O'Brien. Here he's played by a younger actor, but later he's going to be played by J.K. Simmons as an older man. And we're introducing this idea that this is sort of the one normal person in the story who figures out what's going on here with the time travel element. And he's going to become an ally later in the future. That was one of the elements I thought actually succeeded in the movie. That was fun, uh, in large part because it was J.K. Simmons and you can't lose with J.K. Simmons. No. It kind of goes towards one of the questions that I feel like all the movies are constantly begging, which is, you know, how are people dealing with the fact that this crazy shit is happening to them? And, you know, how is that those memories and, you know, potentially trauma playing out as their lives go on? And uh, having a character who I guess kind of represents that for, you know, everybody in all of these movies is, uh, I think, a good choice. And of course. J.K. Simmons. Yeah, and later on, he's sort of framed as a crazy conspiracy type of guy, and all of his co-workers think he's insane, or they think he's unhinged and full of crap. Which is what would happen. Right, which is exactly yeah. what would happen. But again... The problem here I'm having with most of what's going on here is that the action is just kind of lackluster. Sarah Connor comes careening into the thrift store, which is under siege by the Liquid Terminator, and crashes through the store with her van, and she delivers the line, come with me if you want to live. So, you know, we're getting these sort of callbacks that are sort of done, framed in different ways and in different contexts. 
And then we get this sort of chase scene through the streets of L.A. in the van where the Liquid Terminator is coming after them. And it just feels like some pretty lazy rehashing of stuff that we've already seen in the first Terminator. Agreed. Again, score one for Terminator 3 who did that better. So much better. (laughs) That's the thing is I just don't feel like there's anything that happens in this movie or even in Dark Fate that really measures up to even that scene in Terminator 3. Like, I feel like if you're going to make a Terminator movie, the main thing that you should be focusing on is delivering on at least one outstanding action sequence. And I don't think we get that here at all. That was something Salvation did well in, you know, in the first 40 minutes that, you know, are the the parts of the movie that are worth watching is what a, what a cool recreation of the pre-T-1000 future where, you know, it, it's kind of saddled because of where it takes place in the future timeline. It's saddled with the burden of trying to deliver something that is, you know, bigger and cooler than what came before it, but not do liquid metal yet. And having the, like, giant steampunk monster Terminator 50 feet high things, I was like, okay, yeah, that's how you do that. Well done. Yeah, Genesis just doesn't know where to, you know, John Connor is, again, he's basically, he's essentially a T-1000. Yeah. He doesn't do much else, you know, interesting or original. He just, you know, he's black instead of silvery when he's, you know, morphing. He's mimetic alloy. You didn't think that was completely different? That is a word that they have not said before in the Terminator franchise. It's totally different, man. So, yeah, we go to Pops and Sarah Connor's underground hideout. We're going to see a lot of sort of safe houses, both in this movie and in the next movie. Because that's just what you do when you're on the run from a murderous robot, I guess. And they end up defeating the T-1000 with this acid bath kind of situation where they have all this acid in the ceiling and she shoots a bunch of holes in the acid containers and that eventually sort of melts the liquid Terminator. And at one point... Uh, Pops has to sort of grab it with his arm and hold it underneath the acid rain. It ends up disintegrating the flesh off of his own arm and leaving sort of a skeletal hand, which I remember seeing in the trailer and thought like, oh, that's a pretty cool image. Yeah, I thought that was cool in, you know, something that, again, is trying to get away from just being a you know, rehash of what they'd done before, uh, having, you know, a new and novel way of killing a T-1000. Uh, I appreciated that. And again, like the action of it is kind of underwhelming, uh, as you know, everything in this is, but uh, I appreciated the novelty of it. Now, one thing that people liked to bring up when it was announced that Arnold would be back in this role, and I remember people even saying this when he came back for Terminator 3, is how can a robot be older? It always made sense to me that if the robot has human skin, then the skin itself would age. And that excuse is used both in this film and in Terminator Dark Fate. And I believe it's because in both cases, that was what James Cameron told the filmmakers to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, you know, I guess it's how it's always worked. Uh, Again, better job of hand-waving by James Cameron, where since they've, I guess, you want for the sake of showing us Michael Bain's ass, you know, you have to go back naked and only organic tissue can go back and, you know, or at least to have to have organic tissue covering the metal 
stuff because that makes sense that never made sense to me but whatever no and that you know and this this sequence with you know him losing the flesh on his arm of course leads to more stuff that like you just don't want the audience to like think really hard about because it never made any sense and he says oh well, i can't go in now because i have like partially exposed metal it's like oh yeah that was always stupid. Uh, they, they should have found a better way to uh, to keep him from being able to to time jump. I mean, something as simple as, you know, he's about to time jump with them. And then, you know, he has to step out of the, the sphere to protect them from something. Could have done it better without making me think about how this never made any sense. Well, to your point about the time jump sequence, Reese is remembering this new past that he can suddenly now remember where he had a normal childhood. He wasn't a child of the apocalypse. He remembers having a mom and dad and living out in a farm somewhere. And so he's convinced now that that means that the timeline has changed. And they've determined that Judgment Day no longer happens in 1997, but they have to go to 2017 because some version of himself or something told him that Genesis is Skynet. This is some real stretch of logic shit here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was never going to work well for me, but it's especially worse having seen Dark Fate before seeing Genesis because, you know, it was just as simple as Skynet blew up. It didn't happen anymore, but there was a different AI thing that you know gave rise to the terminators like okay that's simple enough it acknowledges the events of terminator 2 and you know that's one of the good ones so cool but yeah the genesis is skynet thing never like what why why are you making this any more complicated well and it just seems like such a stretch to be then like well genesis is skynet so now we have to go to 2017 and they do a little bit with sarah connor being like what what are you talking about But then he's like, you trust me, don't you? Or whatever. And so she just agrees (laughs) to this new plan. We're talking about going to 2017. Like, if this turns out to not be right, you're going to be really fucked if you show up in 2017 post-apocalyptic Terminator world. You're screwed. Yeah, the world is going to be really fucked. But it's kind of nice because they, in order to do this, like you pointed out, they have to be naked. <laughs> we get some Jai Courtney naked, which probably somebody was happy about. And we get some Amelia Clark naked, which, you know, I wasn't necessarily unhappy about. We don't see much, but we at least get some PG-13 nudity. Yeah, and that, uh, that lovely outline of her shadow as Jai Courtney is peeking around the uh, the wall to see her actually naked, but uh, appreciating the, the form she's presenting. He's thirsting for her, for sure. Well, he carried around that picture of her. Right. So he's in love with her. Which is not at all creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does he have that picture in the original Terminator? Yeah, there's a picture of her at the end that of the first Terminator that somebody takes in Mexico of her, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And I forget if he winds up with that or not. I don't think so. But at any rate, it's not because it's his wanking material in the future. It's because (laughs) he needs to find Sarah Connor. I think there should have been a scene where he was touching himself to the picture. (laughs) I think that would have really sold the idea more. And John walks in and says, no, I swear, we're in love. (laughs) So yeah, now we're in 2017 San Francisco because that's where they need to go to stop Genesis from happening because it's a tech company and all tech happens in San Francisco, as we know. We're going to (laughs) find out that the Dyson family 
who Miles Dyson was obviously an important character in T2, and now his son is sort of running the company. They and John Connor are putting this Genesis thing together. They don't know that John Connor is an evil Terminator from the future who's just doing it to make sure that the Judgment Day happens, but, you know, we'll just let that slide. Anyway, they show up in San Francisco in one of those time travel bubbles, and they are right in the middle of one of the highways there, which I've been on a bunch of times. I actually know exactly where that scene was shot. Pops is trying to get there, but he can't get there in time because, as he says, he was stuck in traffic. So <laughs> Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor are taken in by the police. Uh, when you traveled there, did you travel naked via bubble? Of course. That's how you do it in San Francisco. Exactly. It's a very liberal city. You can get away with a lot there. <laughs> so yeah, now we're sort of getting this plot stuff where they're in the hospital and the O'Brien character resurfaces and sees them and is trying to convince the police who have apprehended them that they're from the future and everything. And then John Connor re-enters the story. At first, they think that he's one of them and that he's their ally, but it is quickly revealed that he has been infiltrated. He's this evil Terminator with this mimetic alloy, as they put it. And yeah, we're off and running with the second half of the movie. I would love if there was a, uh, a scene where John Connor is talking to the, the Dysons and the Genesis people and all that. And uh, there's reference made to uh, how we're going to keep pushing off the, uh, the machine that detects mimetic alloys until next year. <laughs> were you really turned off by this reveal that John Connor is an evil Terminator? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a reveal because, I mean, I guess it was a reveal to the characters, but obviously not to us. I mean, I maybe could have enjoyed it more if I didn't know that already and was, you know, anticipating it being the wrong kind of stupid. You know, again, it's having seen Dark Fate before this, it was just more stuff that, like, they got more right later on. So uh, I was, you know, just kind of bored by it and just prepared for it to continue to make underwhelming action scenes happen. Yeah, the main thing about this new Terminator is that, other than the fact that it's John Connor, is that this mimetic alloy allows it to change shape like the T-1000, but it seems to be kind of more of like a nanotech thing. Again, why didn't they just call it nanotech instead of this kind of confusing term that they've <laughs> made up? I guess they have to do something to up the stakes. And that is kind of one of the main problems that I think the Terminator franchise suffers with is that the liquid Terminator from T2 is just pretty much unbeatable in terms of like upgrading a Terminator into something even more deadly and terrifying. And they really just can't ever make that leap again yeah well they kind of did in dark fate which you know i appreciated where it's you know a you know, traditional terminator that has a you know liquid metal skin over it so it can like become two different things to cause like even more mayhem uh at will yeah again mimetic alloy is just liquid metal again and i'm bored they have tried to introduce a ticking clock into this because genesis going online is going to <laughs> apparently be the start of a judgment day but i don't think it's a particularly effective ticking clock i mean it's literally a ticking clock they show the yeah. clock ticking <laughs> several times 
but I don't think that it does the job of making this any more suspenseful. It absolutely does not. It's it's schmuck bait. We know they're going to stop it. So like, why keep like rubbing our noses and with the literal ticking clock? <laughs> so they end up at another safe house, and here's where we get our Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese romance scene. They're obviously attracted to each other at this point, but like I said, she doesn't want to hook up with him because then that means they're going to make an evil john connor or something and meanwhile <laughs> pops is out fishing these magnetic bracelets or something out of like a pipe all of this is just really hard to track like what these things are they're apparently going to be what they need to fight the mimetic alloy am i understanding that correctly yeah it's not really explained why you know magnetic hulk hands are gonna do this job but uh, apparently it does and also doesn't affect him in any way, even though he's made of metal. Right. <laughs> it's just sort of like a MacGuffin weapon that's just going to win the day. But of course, then they end up losing it, so they have to use something else. But it just seems sort of a pointless plot development. Especially when you don't have uh, Aaron Paul around to say, Magnets, bitch! <laughs> Yeah, it's basically magnets. How do they work? <laughs> but John shows up at their safe house and tries to convince them Darth Vader style to join them. And of course, they don't. And they escape on a school bus. I wasn't exactly sure how this development played out. And in fact, I had to rewatch it just to see how they got from the safe house to the school bus. And all they do is walk out of the safe house into a school bus that just happens to be parked there. I guess to go across <laughs> the Golden Gate Bridge. Like it's a row of school buses and they just get into one and steal it. Yeah, a lot more stuff that is unexplained while they spend way too much time explaining timelines that don't make any sense. I feel like there's a, some connective tissue between scenes that was cut out for running time reasons. I wonder what the writers have to say about this movie because I don't think we brought them up yet there's uh leda calagridas who is like actually a good writer uh and then patrick lucier who is a, a you know an epic editor uh who you know worked on like the halloween franchise and you know some other stuff before becoming a uh, pretty capable director in his own right uh who would usually team up with todd farmer uh who you know wrote the scripts for uh my bloody valentine and drive angry and I think Lucier has a co-screenwriting credit on one of those, or maybe a story credit, but uh, it's pretty clear from this movie he should leave the writing to, to Todd Farmer. Apparently he was recommended by Cameron himself. Both of them were. Really? He did something to impress James Cameron. Then again, James Cameron has Shane Salerno working on his new Avatar movies, and <laughs> that guy is not a good writer. No, he is not. Maybe James sees something in him that I haven't seen yet, so I'm willing to give him a chance. We get this scene on the Golden Gate Bridge with the school bus where the Terminator is chasing them and knocks the school bus half off the bridge and they're hanging in the school bus, kind of like the scene in the Lost World Jurassic Park. Eventually, you know, they're hanging off the bridge. Pops is holding on to Sarah and Sarah's holding up onto Kyle and the school bus slips away from around them and falls into the water. This scene kind of reminded me a little bit of the scene in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which had come out just a few years before, where we get a kick-ass ape attack on the Golden Gate Bridge. 
And I felt that this scene really suffered in comparison to that. I uh, didn't see that one. I do remember that scene from the trailers, though. They'll take the, the eight seconds of, of that that I've experienced over this entire scene for sure. It has a lot of the same beats, you know, because, of course, you're going to be on the bridge and people are going to be hanging off the bridge. But in that case, you have like monkeys hanging off the bridge and holding on to people. So far more effective when you have a monkey. A monkey will make anything more effective, in my opinion. Absolutely. And like, what a missed opportunity while you're crossing timelines and all that nonsense is happening. Like, let's let's go to the let's bring a monkey from the monkey timeline. Yeah. Where the monkeys create Skynet or whatever the hell. Right. A monkey Terminator. Now that would be upping the ante. But Nanako is Skynet. <laughs> so yeah, this ends them back in the police station. I guess we weren't technically in the police station before. We were in the hospital when they defeated John Connor with an MRI machine that really uh, messed up his mimetic alloy, and that's how they got out of that situation. <laughs> but here at the police station, because they've figured out that Kyle Reese is involved, that they've brought in kid Kyle Reese... I think they, they figure it out because of his fingerprints or something like that. Yeah, he has the same fingerprints because they've fingerprinted this child for some reason. Right, that makes no sense. <laughs> Not only that, but the kid's fingers would be smaller and uh, I don't know, whatever. Mm. I guess we need kid Kyle Reese in this scene. Of course, John Connor shows up again and everything goes to chaos. But while they're escaping, Kyle hears Sarah call his name and she like stops him on the stairs and tells Tells him not to be afraid, and she does this thing with his hand where she traces her finger along his palm and says, go in a straight line and don't ever look back. And that's a memory that the adult Kyle Reese has of her, this memory that didn't really happen. It was stupid. <laughs> this leads to a helicopter chase, which could have been really cool. Like, I like the idea of this. They steal a police helicopter and then... John Connor steals a police helicopter or something, and so they go in this sky chase throughout San Francisco. And if this had been done skillfully and in a way that seemed tangible and real, I think this could have been a really awesome scene. But unfortunately, it just seems super fakey. And this is a problem I'm going to have with this movie and with Terminator Dark Fate is there are times when... I really want the action to feel real and tangible in a way that it does in Terminator, Terminator 2, and I think Terminator 3 as well. But we fall back on digital stuff, and it ends up feeling just kind of like a bouncy digital cartoon. Yeah, I mean, it's the problem with, you know, most big budget movies these days. Even when it's done well, you still... Very, very little ever. It doesn't look like CGI. But it especially hurts when it's in a franchise that was just such a triumph of practical effects at the outset. Right. And this year was the same year that Mad Max Fury Road came out. And I think we would all agree that that movie really set the bar for like vehicular action scenes. And there was, you know, plenty of CG in that movie too. But the way it was handled never got in the way of the realism. And when I see action scenes like this, my brain just sort of checks out because I know none of it's real. I know I'm just watching, in essence, a cartoon. And I just really can't invest in it the way I could if there was just more of a practical element in it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Mad Max, Fury Road had the, just struck the perfect balance that you wish every big budget movie these days would. Yeah, it really surprises me that that approach isn't a 
embraced more. I'm sure mostly it isn't embraced because it's very time consuming. And that movie had a very storied nightmarish production that I'm sure no one wants to willingly go into again. And so, you know, it's just easier to hire the CG guys to do it all and to have everything be safe and easy. But like you said, this franchise was built on its muscular action scenes. And to have that not be present in this movie, I think is pretty much the most damning element of it, even with all the ridiculousness of the plot. Yeah, and it's not just underwhelming because it's CG, it's also like worse CG than we got in Salvation. Yeah. The naked Arnold Terminator aside. This brings us to our climax, the helicopter crashes, and of course our heroes all survive. In real life, it seems like no one ever survives a helicopter crash. There's like three helicopter crashes in Suicide Squad in which Almost everyone survives. It's really (laughs) straining credulity, in my opinion. So, you know, I could buy it if somebody was inside of a refrigerator inside of a helicopter. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, absent that, it's just complete nonsense. So this climax takes place at the Genesis lab, and they are fighting with John Connor. He's trying to stop them from blowing up Genesis or whatever. It's super boring. And the whole time, we're getting this hologram of the Genesis personality, I guess, and it starts off like a little kid and eventually evolves into Matt Smith. I'm not even really sure what all of this is supposed to be accomplishing. I don't really understand why we need this hologram following them around and sort of lecturing them as they're trying to set bombs. Yeah, saying, please don't hurt me. Like, it's not going to work. We saw the future and it's terrible because of you. Right. And you're not real. Yeah. (laughs) They keep just shooting out the cameras that are projecting these holograms and yeah, it's supposed to be funny, I guess, but it just ends up sort of being annoying because you feel like the scene just keeps getting stopped every time a hologram shows up to lecture you. Yeah, it's repetitive and dumb. So the end result of this fight is John Connor is destroyed in the magnetic field of the time machine and we think that Pops is going to sort of sacrifice himself a la Terminator 2 but the twist here is that the time machine spits Pops back out or whatever and now he's being upgraded with this memetic tech they're clearly trying to set up a new trilogy of movies so we're not going to actually have our Arnold Schwarzenegger character die in this movie And our denouement is simply that uh, Kyle goes in to check with Kid Kyle and give him some advice, I guess, or something on how to live his life. And then the three of them are off on the road and to further adventures that we will never see. (laughs) I mean, yeah, if you recast Kyle Reese, I would watch that TV show, honestly. So let me ask you this. Why do you think this movie failed? Uh, I think... A lot of people were kind of struck by the marketing rollout the same way I was, at least a lot of people that I've talked to, where, okay, I can get on board for this amount of fun-looking stupidity, but then they just keep heaping on more and more, and it just, like, it becomes too much. And again, I appreciate that they were trying to, you know, get away from the sad rehash that 3 was and do something different, but it's it, it didn't work on any level. Jai Courtney's not a good protagonist. I guess they thought hoped that casting Amelia Clark off the uh, the heat of Game of Thrones was going to get people in there, but it didn't. I think that there were a couple of factors involved as to why this failed. 
it wasn't a great movie, and so it garnered t pretty terrible reviews. Like, the reviews were the, really the catastrophic thing about this movie, less so than the money it made, which we're going to see a reverse of in the next movie. But I feel that there was just a bad aftertaste in people's mouths after T3 and Salvation. I think those two movies basically devalued the Terminator franchise as an IP, and I would argue it has yet to recover from that. So I think that people just kind of have had enough Terminator. I think that it's just not the sort of concept that can be revived every few years to make another exciting movie. I think they ran out of road with Terminator, and I think people were already feeling it when this movie came out. We've seen enough movies that are just scene after scene of people saying, we can't stay here. Right. <laughs> okay, then, let's get into Terminator Dark Fate from 2019. Yet another Terminator movie that does not introduce the monkey timeline. It is truly a dark fate if we don't introduce the monkey timeline. <laughs> the budget for this movie was $196 million, and domestically it only cleared $62 million. So significantly dropping off even from Terminator Genesis, worldwide it only made $261 million, which is another significant drop off from what Terminator Genesis made. So this movie was a straight up bomb. It did not even come close to recouping its budget. They say the studio probably lost about $150 million on this movie. The big draw for fans of the franchise was it was announced that James Cameron would return in some capacity to shepherd this movie into theaters. The reason for this was because the rights had reverted to him during the four years between this and Terminator Genesis. I don't know exactly what the legalities were, but the franchise returned to its creator, and that's why he was willing to be more involved in this movie. Although it should be said that most of the time when a Terminator movie would come out, James Cameron would have nice things to say about it. The only one I think he didn't have nice things to say about was T3, because I think he felt that was just an obvious retread of his T2. I do remember the TV spots for Genesis had a quote from him saying, like, you are going to love this Terminator movie. What it amounts to in this movie is he gets a story by credit. So I guess he was involved in coming up with the story. And then there are a bunch of other writers credited with the actual screenplay, most notably being David Goyer of Blade and Batman fame. I know Cameron was pretty active as a producer, too. Um, and Tim Miller, the director, in talking about it, had said that, you know, he wouldn't want to work under those conditions again, having James Cameron be his boss, essentially, on the project, because it led to a lot of decisions that he didn't agree with. Yeah, I remember reading that as well. And it's funny, because at the same time this movie came out, Alita Battle Angel also came out which Cameron was attached to famously for many years, and he ended up handing the directorial reins over to Robert Rodriguez. But in that case, Robert Rodriguez, I guess, was really determined to make as close to a James Cameron movie as he could. And so he talked about what a good experience he had 
with James Cameron as the producer, but I think that was because he did exactly what James Cameron told him to do. Alita Battle Angel, which was co-written by Terminator Genesis, Leda Calogridis. It's all a rich tapestry in Hollywood, <laughs> isn't it, Sean? That has been my experience, yes. Now, how do you feel about director Tim Miller? I think his claim to fame up to this point was mostly the first Deadpool movie, Yes, which I very much enjoyed. I honestly don't like it as much as the second one, but uh, I thought he did a a great job with that and uh, I don't think he did a bad job with what he was you know handed here most of my issues with Dark Fate are on the story and script level so uh, I think he was probably the right choice for what you know Cameron and the producers wanted to do um, it's you know too bad that one the final product didn't turn out to be better and you know that he wound up not being happy with it himself. I will say this right up front, that the action here is definitely an improvement from Terminator Genesis, 100%. Huge step up, yeah. And for the first time we're seeing, or maybe not for the first time, but to kind of the, the standard for the action sequences in this involve like a lot of like very fast-moving robots, which is like kind of how it always would have been, I think, if you had the, you know bigger, stronger, faster humanoids um, fighting each other. So I, th I think introducing that element was was pretty well executed by, uh, by Tim Miller. My opinion of Tim Miller basically is the same as yours. I enjoy the first Deadpool. I don't really know him from much other than that. I know off the top of my head, he was one of the producers on uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, co-written by our friend Josh Miller. That's right, yes. I think he's a decent director overall. I wouldn't say he is exceptional, but for a franchise action movie like this, I think he was probably a pretty sound choice, at least on paper. Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Now, returning once again, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger, this time playing the character of Carl, who is a Terminator who is living a quiet domestic life. How did you feel about Arnold in this movie? Good performance. Uh, less, much less engaging character, I think, than Pops. I, I don't feel like they set him up to succeed at being the kind of old Terminator that we want to see uh, by virtue of, you know, everything that makes him, you know, his, everything that makes his story emotionally engaging has happened off screen with this other family that we, you know, don't really care about as opposed to with Sarah Connor, like in Genesis. That's a really good point. Another thing sort of hobbling him is that he doesn't really show up until we're well over halfway through the movie. So that may have been by his request. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't super excited to be in another Terminator movie at this point. But he just doesn't really have as much screen time or as much involvement in the story as he does in Terminator Genesis. Yeah, I will say that his introduction and, you know, that reveal... Uh, that he had been sending text messages to Sarah Connor was, you know, comes about the same time as the reveal of John Connor being mimetic alloy uh, in Genesis. And I, I think it, it does a, in this film a whole lot more for the story to have that uh, at this point in the, in, in the narrative. Yeah. And I am sort of of two minds about his role in this movie. On one hand, I do think it's sort of interesting that we are asked to accept a Terminator that has lost its purpose and has refound its purpose by 
having a family and living this quiet life. But at the same time, it's just really hard to swallow in a way that's almost more hard to swallow than anything that happens in <laughs> Terminator Genesis, which is an impossible movie to swallow. <laughs> so I can't even really make up my mind how I feel about it. I guess I come down on the side of, well, I have sympathy for any writer who has been tasked with coming up with something interesting and new to do with the character of the Terminator, which is an emotionless robot. So <laughs> sure, why not? Agreed. Uh, I think this is one of the, the parts of the movie that kind of most feels like it has James Cameron's influence. Uh, you know, certainly him growing you know something resembling emotions feels like a callback to terminator 2 and the terminator's arc in that uh and also back to some you know good old-fashioned james cameron hand waving where they spend you know as little time as possible kind of explaining how this came to be and you know as opposed to all the time that's spent trying to justify the stupidity of Genesis is like, let's just move on. We're literally asked to believe that he's managed to live in domestic tranquility with a woman for, what, 20 years or something, and has an adopted son. And Sarah Connor sort of dismissively says, she didn't notice that you weigh 400 pounds. And he says something like, our relationship isn't physical. She just needed a protector. You know, his wife is a Mexican woman who, I guess, ran afoul of some bad people and he protected her from them. But it is really hard to imagine what the day-to-day -day life of Carl the Terminator is, has been for the last 20 years. Yeah, honey, it's been 20 years. Are you, you sure you're not hungry? I'm fine. <laughs> Exactly. Like, is he pretending to eat? I guess we just shouldn't be asking these questions. <laughs> but the other big draw for this movie was the return of Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. I was, I guess, excited to see her return to this role. This is the most iconic role she is known for. I really think that she does incredible work in Terminator 2, especially I love her in Terminator 1, but she's playing mostly a damsel in distress, and her character really changes dramatically in Terminator 2. And I remember even at the time, everyone was really impressed by not only her performance, but her physical transformation into this hardened warrior woman. In this movie, she's still sort of in that mode, but a lot of time has gone by, and I don't know if it's all been super kind to Linda Hamilton and she feels a little wobbly, I would say, especially in the first few scenes that she's in. I feel like she's not quite back in the saddle of acting, so to speak. I feel like she actually improves as the movie goes on and she's more just asked to participate in action scenes. But in the first few scenes when we see her again, it's kind of a little bit rough. Yeah, she feels like a caricature of Terminator 2's Sarah Connor. She's trying to do the tough shtick, but it, it doesn't come across as nearly as authentic. She doesn't come across as layered or as interesting a character as she was in Terminator 2. And she has a rough time delivering a lot of those one-liners, which isn't entirely her fault. Which again, I have to ask when it comes to performance, 
you know, how much help was she getting from Tim Miller? Yeah, I feel like if Cameron himself had directed this, her performance would have been of a higher caliber. But I don't think Tim Miller is known for being an actor's director. And so I think that she just doesn't come off as good as she could. Like as a writer, James Cameron was always pretty basic. But it was, you know, part of a vision that he was bringing to the screen as an incredibly capable director. So, like, it always worked. A lot of John Connor's silly one-liners in Terminator 2 or uh, Tom Arnold in True Lies and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's... The, the, the quips aren't, you know, a thinking man's, you know, like writerly quip, but he just knew how to strike a tone in which that felt very at home. And when you're hearing Linda Hamilton spout all of her, you know, tough lady nonsense now, it just feels very out of place. Speaking of tough ladies, the rest of the cast is rounded out by Mackenzie Davis, who is playing this character of Grace who is our time-traveling character in this case, but she's not a Terminator. She is an enhanced human. So she's just a regular person that's been given sort of some kind of mechanical enhancements. How did you feel about Mackenzie Davis in this movie? Uh, I think she did a really solid job. And I, I think that this is the much better version of, you know, John Connor being an enhanced human in the last one. I like that our time-traveling hero is, you know, something new and different as opposed to just a human or another Terminator. And, you know, it gives a kind of a, an interesting glimpse into how the future, the Legion future, is different from the Skynet future. I think she really delivers on the physical part of the movie, and she is kind of our main action hero, I would say, throughout this movie. She's doing most of the impressive stunts and she's handling a lot of the fighting, and I think that she is an imposing physical presence that can pull that off. I would not say the same for the character of Danny as portrayed by Natalia Reyes. She is the character that a Grace has been sent to protect. She's going to be the sort of John Connor in this scenario where sometime in the future she is an important figure. It's sort of played that especially Sarah Connor, just assumes that Danny is going to give birth to some sort of new John Connor that's going to save the future. But it was pretty obvious to me that it was really just going to be her who is the savior of the future. That twist did not surprise me at all. I think the actress is quite good. I think she is playing the role very well emotionally. I struggle when we see her in the future and she's supposed to be this badass who's like coming into this group of rapists or something and just talks them out of being rapey and (laughs) just talks them into joining her revolution. I'm like, no, sorry, not cutting it here. And she's just so tiny that I cannot buy her as the kick-ass warrior of the apocalypse unfortunately yeah all the execution on that in the in the present and in the the future flash forwards uh was pretty clunky uh the way that they try to bury the lead and not have grace tell her why she's actually protecting her and i i think when it finally does come out you know it's like, why didn't you tell me sooner it's like because you weren't ready it's like no shut up you just wanted to wait and hold that reveal until later uh and you did do a very good job of hiding it yeah uh, I didn't mind that, you know, Sarah Connor did make the assumption she did about, you know, when she says, 
she's not protecting you she's protecting your womb uh because that's just like the world that you know she's lived in for her entire life that that was you know her her value to kind of trying to change the future but i I feel like there was some very captain marvel level lack of subtlety about how like we're going to make a statement about how action movies can be about women now and i think that unfortunately hinders this movie with some fans you know i personally love a story that involves a kick-ass female action heroine i think that that there's a way to do that that doesn't seem to be sort of pandering the way captain marvel does unfortunately i think this movie at times sort of veers into that territory this is a franchise in which we have already had one of the iconic female action heroes of all time right and she's back in this movie I feel like as long as you have that and if you're going to introduce this Mackenzie Davis character as a kick-ass action hero I feel like we've got it covered then like I don't need then this other layer of this other woman who's also going to be the savior of humanity it's just a little bit over the top it's like the uh, the literal ticking clock of Genesis. They decided that they need to make like a literal statement about you know female empowerment in uh, in this one. Well, one thing that's not a statement on female empowerment, or maybe it is, is the Terminator that is our main villain, the Rev Nine. Now, this is a Terminator upgrade in which we have a metal skeleton and then a sort of liquid metal terminator over the metal skeleton they can split apart into two terminators it is played by gabriel luna and i think he does a pretty decent job of being a scary terminator guy i would not necessarily rank him up there with robert patrick but he, he might be my third favorite Terminator in the Terminator franchise. I think I would agree with you there. Yeah, he does a good job. And, you know, again, he has just in the design of the character, he has like something more to, to play with, which is, you know, kind of exciting for him and for fans who were just watching rehashes of the T-1000 since Terminator 2. Again, though, I do feel like while this Terminator does have a little bit more to recommend it, It still is not the jump that we made from the Arnold Terminator in Terminator to the Robert Patrick Liquid Terminator in Terminator 2. This feels like sort of a half measure. Like, we're sort of there, but not really. And also, if you remember, in Terminator 3, we had the TX, which was a female Terminator. However, it did the same thing where it was like a metal Terminator beneath and then sort of a liquid Terminator on top. So this felt like we'd already kind of seen this. They didn't play with it in the way they play with it here where the Terminators literally separate into two Terminators, but the idea was still in that movie. So as cool as this is, I'm still not blown away, so to speak. Uh, Well, then I guess it was lucky for me that I had forgotten that about Terminator 3 and it uh, felt really (laughs) cool and new. Yeah, I just remembered her being another T-1000, so... No, there was a metal Terminator underneath her. Uh, it was similar to this. It didn't look exactly the same, but it was similar. Hmm. Well, let's talk about something that all legacy sequels like this end up doing. This definitely is a legacy sequel, or a requel, as the recent Scream has 
termed it. That meaning this is a story that's going to be technically a sequel to at least one or two of the previous franchise entries, but we are going to bring back legacy characters, specifically Sarah Connor, as played by Linda Hamilton in this case, in the effort to sort of kickstart a new franchise featuring new younger actors. Would you say that's a fair assessment of what this film is? Uh, definitely felt that way, yeah. We're talking Star Wars Force Awakens here. This was, That was clearly the template for making this movie. I think since 2015, when Force Awakens hit, that has been the go-to approach for most sequels. And honestly, at this point, I am fucking sick of it, and I would like for <laughs> it to stop, and I would like for people to try something new, but that just seems to be the world we live in now. Yeah, I, I do not have good news for you there, Seb. The true nadir for me has been the new Ghostbusters, but you may feel differently. That, to me, was where I was just like, please, no more, stop. Well, I'm sure that the next Indiana Jones movie will handle it just splendidly. That movie seriously gives me anxiety just thinking about it. <laughs> but let's talk about this opening scene where we go into the past. We are catching up with Sarah Connor and John Connor, as played by Edward Furlong, a few years after the events of T2, they have stopped Judgment Day from happening and they are relaxing at some beach resort or something. And a Arnold Schwarzenegger T-800 Terminator comes out of the water and guns Edward Furlong down right in front of Sarah Connor and she can't do anything to stop it. This was some serious Alien 3 shit, don't you think? <laughs> Agreed. Um... Yeah, it's certainly planting the flag for the kind of movie that it wants to be right away. Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of people were turned off by this opening scene because they wanted John Connor to still be alive. I mean, you know, we've spent so much time trying to protect him in previous films that this maybe did feel like a little bit of a fuck you. However, as a fan of Alien 3, I kind of love it. <laughs> when a movie starts off like this and clears the decks, so to speak. And I think the de-aging technology in this scene is pretty damn good. Linda Hamilton really looks like she did back then, and the Edward Furlong character looks pretty spot on, too. I was pretty impressed with this overall. Agreed. And this is definitely the best that, like, CG young Arnold has looked. So we're sort of setting up the idea that Sarah Connor has witnessed the death of her son. And so she's, you know, all about killing the Terminators, especially if they look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Does it clarify, since they had already destroyed Skynet, where he came from? Yes. He was a Terminator that had, was sent back to kill John Connor before Skynet was destroyed. They'd sent back t-800s and they had sent back the liquid terminator but this was one that was just lying around somewhere as a <laughs> fail safe it didn't get the memo from the future that <laughs> skynet has been canceled so it just fulfilled its mission and found them where it's been for a few years i don't know hanging out in the bottom of the ocean i guess <laughs> i have no idea it seems to just walk right out of the the ocean they don't explain where it's been or what it's been doing but they do explain that it was just another terminator that was set up before they stopped judgment day from happening 
He's got a pretty decent tan, so he might have just been waiting for them to show up at that particular resort to uh, do its bidding. I think that is what he was doing. <laughs> you know, this Terminator is Carl. And later on, Carl explains that once he had killed John Connor, he had no purpose. And that was what sort of prompted him to find a family he could help. And that's, in turn, how he grew a conscious and how he came to understand what he had done to Sarah Connor by killing her son and therefore why he has been feeding her this information so she can carry out a never-ending quest of vengeance on other Terminators that are being sent through. And I actually like all that. You know, again, feeling the Cameron touch of trying to bring a, an emotional arc to a Terminator a la Terminator 2, even if it happens off screen in this instance. Uh, that actually worked for me. It's one of the, I think, the stronger elements of the movie. And it gives uh, Linda Hamilton something interesting to play off when they do finally catch up with Carl. I don't really know what kind of story you would even make if you're planning on bringing back Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor without killing John. Like, what do you do? Just have her protecting a middle-aged John Connor? <laughs> That's not really going to have the same effect. So as strong of a choice as this is, I do agree with it in terms of a narrative. If you're going to bring back Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor, this seems like the right move. As opposed to telling middle-aged John that he needs to watch his cholesterol. Yeah. He needs to get him on some Restorvistan. <laughs> so after this, we go to Mexico City in the modern day, and this is where we get our first introduction to Grace. She appears in a big electric bubble like you do in the Terminator franchise. And it's kind of cool. She's like over a highway or something, and she actually goes through several lanes of the highway and ends up beneath the highway. Kind of a cool way to bring her into the story. And there are these Mexican kids there making out. And, you know, a big scene happens where police show up and she kicks the asses of all the police. And she's naked, of course, while she's doing this. And she convinces rather forcefully the male of the couple to give her his clothes. So now she's got some clothes. How'd you feel about this intro to Grace? Uh, I dug it. Yeah, she's like right off the bat. We're already getting much better action sequences than Genesis. Uh, you know, it's fun watching her kick ass because it's well executed. And I, I, I thought it was really fun that they decided to have the bubbles not just land perfectly on the ground like they have in every other movie. They were pretty close. They almost got her onto the free. I mean, I guess at that point, why are they dumping her in the middle of the freeway? But um, that's probably about as imprecise as time travel would be from what else we know about this universe. So the fact that she and the Rev-9 both kind of wind up landing, you know, 20 to 40 feet in the air and then land with a thud was uh, a, a fun way to make that intro a little more fresh at least the rev nine had the right address he was right there in the apartment complex just hovering above the laundry and everything he comes just crashing right down yeah. he must have better location technology or whatever i have to say not super psyched about the setting here and that we're going to be dealing with mexico city I don't know. It's just not necessarily my idea of an exciting place to set a Terminator movie, although it does sort of track with the rest of the series because I believe that Sarah Connor at one point fucks off to Mexico and stuff. I mean, it's fine. It's just not a particularly colorful environment and the settings in which a lot of this movie takes place are sort of dusty, deserty kind of areas. It 
just isn't super exciting to me visually. I don't really feel like this movie has got a lot going on in the visual department. True, yeah, it is, you know, very washed out, like, uh, you know, taking its cues from Steven Soderbergh's Mexico in, uh, in traffic. And I definitely had the same thought you did, thinking about how Sarah Connor where she went to learn to be a badass was Mexico. And, you know, she had like contacts and stuff there, which is referenced in T2 and then kind of honored by the TV series. But that doesn't really actually have any connection to why so much of this happens in Mexico. It just happens to be a Mexican lady who is going to be the next John Connor. Uh, as far as the setting goes, though, aside from not being, you know, too visually interesting, it certainly gives them some runway for the plot, having to, you know, get across the border to Texas to find Carl once they figure out that that is their destination. And it feels like there might be some kind of subtle political statement going on here, though I'm not exactly sure what it is necessarily. Yeah, it feels like they wanted that to resonate somehow. But yeah, again, it's if there is something there and it wasn't just for the, you know, sake of having obstacles involving trains and border detention i'm not sure what it is i do like the little setup that we get with danny and her brother and her dad her brother's hoping to become a singer and so he's singing songs and they have to go work at their shitty job at a car factory it's shorthand it sets things up pretty quickly but i think it does a decent enough job and it gives her something to lose and something for us to have sympathy towards her agreed uh, right up until they get to the factory and his job has been replaced by a machine oh so subtly that's a real hit you over the head kind of moment is this really what we're thinking about in 2019 i mean machines and automation have been happening now for a solid 30 years this should come as a revelation to no one at this point who works in a factory that you will probably be replaced at some point by a machine who can do the job better than you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is some like 1990 shit here. <laughs> and the Rev-9 has gone to the apartment and assumed the identity of their father and killed him by doing so. And it shows up at the factory with their lunches. <laughs> it's sort of this <laughs> silly setup where it's like, they forgot their lunch. And he's allowed into the factory and then just starts going shithouse. And then meanwhile, Grace has snuck her way in by beating somebody up and taking their hard hat and shit. And we get our first real Terminator fight here where Grace is facing off against the Rev-9 with a pretty big hammer. And I remember this was featured heavily in the trailers and stuff. Yeah, and it's um, it wisely kind of hints at what the structure of the Rev-9 is going to be while still leaving it kind of, you know, fulfilling its potential as a, you know, metal skeleton with uh, liquid metal skin uh, for later. Because as she's hitting it with the hammer, you see that, you know, it kind of draws back as liquid metal and it has the skeleton underneath but it's before he's like fully separating and becoming two terminators so yeah this was a pretty good sequence i enjoyed it it really does feel more like a legitimate terminator sequel than the other terminator sequels we have gotten up to this point aside from t2 obviously tim miller just being much more capable at staging action even like you know the it being as cgi heavy as it is it already does a a lot more to keep me engaged what happens next is they go on the run 
Grace manages to convince them that they are being hunted and they need to escape. So they end up in the truck and they're driving along the highway and being chased now by the Rev-9 in another truck. And we get this action scene. It's not terribly spectacular and not to keep harping on T3, but I feel the truck chase in that is much, much better than this. One cool thing we get is Grace jumping into the truck bed and hurling rebar spears at the Rev-9. That stuff's pretty cool. But overall, I don't really think this truck chase is all that remarkable. Yeah, the highlight of it, I think, is, you know, that this is the moment where they fully reveal the structure of the Rev-9 and uh, have him crawl, the liquid metal part of it, crawl out through the, the busted windshield while the skeleton is still there driving. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, they utilize the Rev-9's skill set effectively here. I'm just talking about the general choreography of the truck chase. It's just not that remarkable. We're just in a big open highway and, you know, they're driving fast and throwing stuff. Yeah. It's fine. It gets the job done, but I wanted it to be a little bit more intense. But the way they ratchet up the intensity is the brother is speared by one of these rebar spears and dies. And so they crash the truck or whatever, and the Rev-9 is advancing upon them in both of its forms. And that's when Sarah Connor shows up with a rocket launcher and saves the day blows the Rev-9 right off the highway, and then she gets to deliver the I'll be back line as they sort of stand there dazed in awe of this old lady that has appeared out of nowhere. Yeah, so she gets the actual versions of the lines, but Grace was getting, like, weird tweaks on them. Doesn't she say at one point, like, uh, join me if you want to stay alive? It's like, it's something like that. It's like some alternate version of like come with me if you want to live which was like weird and i guess they only did so that they could give like all the iconic lines to sarah connor it reminded me of the spider-man reboot amazing spider-man where they had the scene between him and uncle ben but because they didn't want to just literally rehash the dialogue of with great power comes great responsibility they sort of mishmashed this other way to say it but without actually saying it yeah it's changing stuff just to change it although like i said in, in this case i think maybe it but my best guess is that it was so they could just give all the that stuff to linda hamilton so they very ungratefully steal linda hamilton's truck <laughs> and go racing off with it and at this point we find out that grace is enhanced she insists that she is not a robot she is a human but because of her enhancements, she can only really fight at full force for a couple of minutes before it sort of burns her out and she needs to get drugs to sort of rejuvenate herself. And the reasoning for this is she explains that you only get a few minutes to defeat a Terminator. And if you haven't done it in like five minutes, you're not going to do it and you're dead. So... That's all the energy you really need if you're going to be one of these enhanced beings. But they go to a pharmacy and hold the pharmacist up at gunpoint, basically. And Mackenzie Davis is just going through the, the shelves, just picking out any drug she can find. And whenever we get scenes like this, it always stresses me out because it's like, 
I take some medication and I can tell you it is fucking hard to read the label on those bottles. And if you're messed up to begin with and just grabbing <laughs> at anything, I don't see how you possibly could be getting the right drugs. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the setup of, you know, her only being able to go full force for a few minutes. Uh, I think, you know, kind of shoehorning in the explanation of like, that's how long you have to defeat a Terminator before you're going to be dead anyway is kind of worthless. Like it can just be that your body is exhausted by these enhancements like that makes perfect sense to me but uh you know in kind of doling out the story beats of danny having to kind of start to become the danny that is going to save the universe later or <laughs> save the world later seeing her have to you know take responsibility for grace after she passes out and show some fortitude is a uh, well-executed beat there. Yeah, I mean, I feel this is there to sort of depower Grace so that she's not constantly kicking the Terminator's ass all the time because then we wouldn't feel like there was any real stakes to these fights. And like you said, it forces Danny to step up and be resourceful and learn to be a hero as she needs to. So it serves a dual purpose. It's good screenwriting. It's maybe just a little bit of an obvious contrivance. Yeah, especially after having stolen the truck, which, like, why'd you do that? Lady saved you. Stick with the lady. The lady with the rocket launcher. Who doesn't want to be with the lady with a rocket launcher? <laughs> but thankfully, Sarah Connor is not gone from the story for too long. She's waiting for them outside the pharmacy. She takes them to a seedy hotel room, and here we get the whole backstory about Sarah Connor and how she's been receiving these text messages and showing up places where Terminators appear and taking them out. This is how she knew where this Terminator was and... This is how she got involved with saving them. There's some funny jokes about how she has to keep her phone in a chip bag because the tinfoil prohibits it from being traced. I don't know if that's a real thing. Have you ever tried this? I have not. Uh, and, and they say later on that it doesn't actually work, right? Because doesn't doesn't somebody find her and they're like, why did you think that would work? It's it's Carl. Yeah. He says, if you're going to keep your phone in a chip bag, then keep it in the chip bag is what he says. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. So yeah, so it does work. But uh, I, I do like too that, you know, when of course she could just buy a roll of aluminum foil when they ask why chip bags and she just says, oh, I like chips. Yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about this whole setup and how they've sort of gotten Sarah Connor into the story? I, I am actually, I think that's one of the elements that works uh, better in this movie than a lot of it. And it's another example of, like I said before, the magical James Cameron hand waving where, you know, we're not going to, don't, don't think too hard about like, you know, the probably the 14 cell phones that she's probably gone through in the past 20 years that she's been receiving these texts and that she's probably changing her number if she's that paranoid and how Carl figured out how, what her number is and how to, you know, or how he's even <laughs> figuring out where the Terminators are. Yeah. It's another example of how this movie does like a much better job of just, you know, let's just get this out there and move along. And uh, I think it's a, uh, it's, it's a cool way to lead them to Carl also. This is one point for Dark Fate there. Like you're saying, the way they figure out that they need to hook up with this mysterious anonymous source is Grace actually has coordinates tattooed to her body. She's got the coordinates, and then via her enhancements, she's able to break through the encryption that was keeping Sarah Connor from learning who was sending the texts. And they find out that the texts are coming from the same place that the tattoo, 
is leading her to. So they got to get to Texas and they're in Mexico and they have a Mexican citizen with them. So that means they got to cross the border illegally. So the next sort of segment of the movie deals with them trying to do that. They hop aboard a freight train. And I believe this is where we start to get a little bit of flashbacks from the grim future that Grace is from. We learn that, like you said, there was just another AI that destroyed the world. It was called Legion. At first, it shut everything down. And then it, I guess we nuked ourselves because the superpowers just started lobbing nukes at each other, thinking that they were the ones that shut everything down or something like that. It's a little convoluted. We probably just could have said, okay, same thing happened as Judgment Day. But because they're just trying to tweak things a little bit, they're giving us a little bit of a different story. This stuff, I think, is by far the weakest thing in this movie. I don't really feel like this new future is all that interesting or all that different than anything we've seen. It very much feels like a first order to the Empire kind of, oh, it's a new bad guy who's just the same bad guy with a different name. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I appreciate the job they did of keeping the explanation a little simpler than in Genesis where you know the whole genesis is skynet thing was not just a dumb explanation but also you know centering the movie around like that coming into being was it didn't do it any favors but you know the fact that skynet got blown up later on we made a new ai and that's when what winds up taking over and linda hamilton's commentary that the assholes never learn uh that works a lot better uh as far as the other convoluted stuff with you know us launching nukes at our, ourselves because we were confused by legion i think that was just like you were saying an attempt to not do what genesis had just done which was you know genesis you know launched all the nukes and did skynet also did it nuke us or did it just or did the robots just take us by force skynet literally nuked us it launched the nukes. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. The the explosions. The many, many explosions. And the skeleton holding onto the fence, yeah. Attempt to not do that again, but didn't do itself any favors by being that convoluted. I feel, unfortunately, one of the many ways the Terminator franchise is sort of written into a corner is that they always have to sort of come up with this same scenario because unfortunately for them, the Matrix did the truly logical the machines take over scenario and what would a different version of this really look like. And so they can't do the matrix. So they've just got to keep doing the same old Terminator thing where the machines take over and then they send a Terminator into the past or send somebody into the past. And it's just stuck in this repetitive plot loop of needing to do the same thing over and over and needing to dress it up in different clothing so they think they've fooled us into not thinking we're just getting the same meal again. First they take our jobs and then they take our world. <laughs> so yeah, this leads to a crossing the border sequence where they hook up with a friend of Danny's who's a coyote. I think he's a relative of some sort. And he gets them across the, the border, but the Rev-9 is tracking them via a drone. And they get underneath the wall, and the uh, Border Patrol are waiting for them because the Rev-9 has alerted them to the presence of these immigrants. And it's framed it as though they are some sort of, like, drug runners or something. 
And then he crashes the drone at Danny. I, I'm assuming in hopes to kill her, but that does not kill her. And they end up in this detention center. Not a bad action sequence. Not a great one. And yeah, again, it's uh, like, so what are they, what are we trying to say here with the whole, like, you know, border crossing? Like, you, you, I, it feels like you think there's a metaphor here, but I don't know. It's lost on me if there is. Yeah, and we end up in the detention center, and I guess we're supposed to sort of feel like, you know, they're being dehumanized and put into these pens that are sort of like cages and everything. It does lead to a pretty decent action scene when the Rev-9 shows up, and of course it's in disguised as a border officer or whatever, but it starts going sort of shithouse, and all the Border Patrol cops try to subdue it, but all these sort of spikes are coming out of its body and it's just killing people left and right. You know, if you want some good Terminator stabbing action, you get it in this scene. <laughs> I forget. Is it here where um, a, a line that's aged interestingly in the BLM world, which is uh, she says, if you put 100 cops between you and a Terminator, you're going to have 100 dead cops. Yeah. I can hear a lot of people out there saying 100, you say. Well, and I also have to think that this was some kind of statement on Trump's wall that he was threatening to build for four years. Right. Although, like you're saying, I don't know exactly what the statement being made here is. And I mean, James Cameron is obviously a very vocally liberal guy, so I can't believe that he's coming down on the side of Trump. You know, obviously, this is something that was in the news a lot for four years. So I guess it's just trying to capitalize on a hot button issue as a framing device for an action scene. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, like I said, it does give a lot of runway to, uh, you know, create obstacles to them getting to Texas because it's a pain in the ass to get across the border, even when you're not being chased by a Terminator. But they get lucky because they escape from the detention center and they get themselves a sweet helicopter. The Rev-9 does show up and we get another action scene here where Danny puts herself at risk and will be chastised by Grace later for it. And of course, Grace knows how to fly a helicopter. She knows how to fly just about everything in this movie. She's going to later fly like a military transport jet. So she really knows what she's doing. But they escape via helicopter and the Rev-9 poses as a soldier to get his own copter from the police who we assume he kills, but we don't see him do it. Well, Grace says earlier that if he like absorbs somebody to mimic them, that like they don't survive. So Yeah. Well, we saw that in T2 when the Robert Patrick Terminator was killing John Connor's step-parents. I don't think the implication there, though, was that like part of the process of the mimicry winds up killing the person that he's impersonating. Like when he kills the guard at the mental institution who was like getting coffee you know he impersonates him first and then he kills him just to you know not have a second version of himself wandering around asking uh, creating questions right it's not necessary for him to kill the person he just does it because it's cleaner yeah so yeah this is where we are finally introduced to arnold schwarzenegger as carl the family man in the drapery business Aside from the stuff that we already mentioned about him and his family and growing a conscious, the fact that he runs a drapery business is played for some pretty fun comedy. There's a scene later where they're just having a little downtime and waiting for Sarah's military contact where Arnold is talking about how you don't 
put plain drapes in a kid's room. And he's like, and I said to them, don't do it. <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that. The upholstery on the furniture in their house, too, is really on point. Like, that guy clearly knows his fabrics. He knows his drapes. And the drapery van is going to be the vehicle in which they go back on the run. So the perfect cover. It's kind of comical to see Carl's draperies or whatever racing around as they try to escape death. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> Carl realizes that they're going to need to figure out a way to kill this Rev-9. And the plan they come up with is they're going to try to build a kill box or something, which basically means it's a trap to use Danny as bait and to get this Terminator into this area so that they can kill it. But I think I might be forgetting something. Where are they intending to go at this point? Do you remember? Uh, don't exactly. But I do remember hearing the word kill box a lot. <laughs> yeah, they eventually decide to just do it at the hydro plant in which they crash. But they are heading somewhere for some reason. And I cannot for the life of me remember what the plan A is. Like where they're intending to go. But who cares? <laughs> I do also think that it's a little bit of a convenience that Sarah Connor, who at this point is a fugitive from the law and has been for many years, to the point when she's at the detention center, one of the arresting officers is like, it's an honor to meet you or whatever, because, you know, she's such an infamous fugitive. But yet she's got a friend in the military who's willing to just hook her up with whatever she wants. And he's even like, I'm risking court martial just talking to you or whatever. Well, then why are you talking to her? Like, what did she ever do to for you, dude? Yeah, this is a point in the movie that could have used a little more of the uh, James Cameron magic hand waving. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Does it say that he's he's her, like, supplier for her weapons and stuff like that? Yes. I mean, I guess that explains why she has rocket launchers and stuff, but... Right, but who in their right mind would be supplying this crazy old woman with weapons? <laughs> Especially yeah. since nobody knows that she saved the world from murder bots. Yeah, exactly. What would be the motive for anybody to be like, sure, here's a rocket launcher? And then they show up, like, on the tarmac of this military base and the Rev-9 shows up at the same time and starts attacking them via helicopter. Meanwhile, there's this military transport jet being loaded up on the tarmac and they just walk right on to the jet. And the guy's like, this is Sarah Connor. She knows what she's doing or something like that. And they're just all <laughs> like, oh, okay. Just take this extremely expensive military transport jet and escape. Yeah, they definitely owed us uh, a better explanation or they owed us an explanation for like what their relationship is i mean even give me the like the hackneyed like uh, sarah cutter saved my life this one time or you know something like that yeah even that would have worked it's something that simple it's just really i'm not buying all of these plot developments just because i'm constantly questioning why is she being allowed to get away with this? <laughs> That's crazy. And especially after, you know, like I was saying before, like they, they managed to create, um, you know, engaging obstacles of like getting across the border and having, you know, kind of a, a more grounded progression as they were trying to, you know, get to Arnold and escape the, uh, the Rev-9 to give us this now, which just feels like, you know, the like the worst part of your typical underthought modern action movie yeah and i have to say that at this point even though the movie 
gets pretty fun and exciting in terms of just a modern action movie. The lack of grounding then extends to the special effects sequences because eventually the Rev-9 catches up with them and manages to go from a refueling plane to their plane and attacks them in the plane and we get this big fight in the plane as it's falling to the earth so we get this sort of zero-g fight which is cool but at this point the CGI stunt people really kick into high gear and I end up being a little bit disappointed in this sequence because it feels like they had something good on paper and then in the end they just relied a little bit too heavily on CG for my liking. Yeah, really well conceived, but, and stuff like this happens a lot in like Spider-Man movies and stuff like that, like where, you know, just shoot people doing stuff in a green screen on wires. Like, is it really saving that much time and energy or I don't know, maybe it's like, you know, I'm sure it's also possibly like an insurance thing where sure, you, yeah. if you're able to minimize as many stunts as possible, it's going to, you know, save you money there. But I mean, that's why we have stunt people, like, and then you put the CG bullshit around them. But, you know, at least give me people doing something. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's never really Linda Hamilton or Arnold Schwarzenegger being flung around this room anyway. So yeah. why not stage it in a more convincing way where it doesn't obviously seem like CG stunt people and CG backdrops and stuff like give me something that feels a little more tangible and it starts off that way like it feels like they could have gone that way but eventually it just becomes too much digital stunt work for my liking yeah they end up parachuting out of this plane that's crashing with a Humvee like they're literally airdropping a Humvee that they are in. I remember this scene from the trailers, especially, where you're seeing this sort of fiery plane in the sky rocketing past them. And Grace is outside of the Humvee in the parachute, and they're wondering where she is. And then we see her. She's actually like hanging off the platform very heroically pretty cool looking visually but again feels pretty fakey yeah just more of this franchise losing what made it great in its first two entries the humvee crashes into this hydroelectric plant that has this big dam so of course we get the scene where it's sort of teetering on the edge of the dam and grace figures that the only way to get them away from the rev 9 i guess is to go off the dam so Danny and Sarah are in the Humvee as it's literally sliding down the dam and then into the water. And we get more sort of underwater fighting stuff that is cool, but it looks a little Aquaman-y. It doesn't look like they're really underwater anywhere. Yeah, it really, in the third act, this all devolves into just a lot of banging pixelated action figures together. I think ultimately that's what sort of leaves me a little bit disappointed in this movie, is that I feel it got really close to being a pretty great action movie, but in the end they just couldn't quite bring it over the finish line by going the extra mile with some of these sequences and stunts. And it's too bad because I feel like the ideas are there and the execution isn't bad. You know, you can tell what's going on. Tim Miller is a skilled action director. I just feel like technology is getting in the way at this point. Yeah, it just winds up feeling, you know, however well conceived it is, just kind of typical. Whereas the first few entries weren't just a, you know, triumph of special effects. It was 
Jim Cameron just, you know, had the the magic that made all that work. And you wonder if he had all the tools that he had he wanted at his disposal, how well he could have made this work. We do get a pretty fun final fight here, though, in the hydro plant. They figure out that they can actually use this hydro plant as the kill box that they were looking for. And they lure the Rev-9 in there. Uh, we get a cool bit of action where Grace has picked up this chain with a hook on it, and she's using that as her weapon. I like unconventional weapons, and I especially like weapons that are like hooks or blades at the end of like a rope or a chain. I'm always down for that kind of action. That's why Scorpion was always my favorite Mortal Kombat character. <laughs> I like the get over here. I mean, it's not a jaw-droppingly great fight, but it's pretty good. There's some pretty good action going on here and i especially think that mackenzie davis is acquitting herself really well in terms of action choreography in conception kind of what everybody's given to do to you know execute the like the final plan i think is is well done it's you know just the the blur of pixels that stop this from achieving its full potential and i'm not exactly sure what the mechanics here end up being that destroy the terminator i understand that grace has this power source inside her that can be used to short out the rev 9's brain or whatever grace becomes mortally wounded and she's telling danny to take out her power source which will kill her and use it to kill the Terminator. So we're getting a heroic sacrifice from her. At one point, Carl smashes the Rev-9 into this oscillating turbine, and that sort of stops him momentarily. This seemed like it would be the thing that actually ended up killing the Terminator for real, but it's not. It's still alive. It bursts out of the turbine, and so now we've got to use this power source to kill it. But Danny can't do it because she's just not strong enough. And Carl, who we think, I guess, has been deactivated at this point, but then comes back to life because Sarah is demanding it to, <laughs> takes this power source and stabs it into the Rev 9's head, killing it. And then they just both fall into like this pit and they both just kind of melt or something. Was there something I'm missing here as to why this is their final movement no that wasn't quite clear to me either uh it feels like they just wanted to do the arnold sacrificing himself thing again and have it feel a little bit different so just kind of by default we'll get through it as quickly as possible right but in that he like descends into a molten pit so you clearly understand why he is now going to be disintegrated whereas here it's just Carl and the Rev-9 like lying at the bottom of this pit. And I guess there's some sort of electromagnetic thing going on that sort of melts them or something. I just don't even understand what mechanically is happening here. Kill box, Seb. It's a kill box. I think if he had just shoved him into the, the turbine, that would have worked <laughs> for me. But, you know, Carl has also got to heroically sacrifice himself. So, A... We can, like you said, replay that beat from Terminator 2 and B, Sarah Connor can realize that she was wrong all along and that Carl really had a soul or whatever. And so she sheds a tear for him, as do we. Yeah, something that I uh, didn't mention earlier, but a lot of her, you know, badass lady lines are directed at Carl and just about how, you know, her 
you know, obviously I, I don't hold it against her that she's angry at this thing for killing her son, but when it becomes about her not believing that it can change, like, keep it about just, like, a purely revenge thing and not, like, try to make me think that you're rationally angry at this at this thing that's been helping you and what long game would it possibly be playing to like kill you later as opposed to just now if it is you know if it is still evil somehow yeah it uh, like that didn't make a lot of sense and so it, it really detracts from the emotion that's supposed to be coming across when she does shed a tear for it at the end i understand that this thing killed her son and so that she hates it forever and ever but also it's a robot and it's just a piece of machinery ultimately. So the fact that she keeps kind of bringing it up, like it's, you can't trust that thing. It's a, it's a killing machine or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously. And like, obviously it's been <laughs> operating on this whole different level. So it's not that I expect her to just forgive the Terminator, but they just keep playing that beat way too many times. And I don't feel like by the time we get here, her sort of turnaround on this feels totally earned. It needed to be calibrated better. Especially when she went through Terminator 2, at the end of which the machine that she has been fighting with the whole time says, I know now why you cry. Like, she's seen this happen before right. over the course of a few days, um, you know, let alone the 20 years that Carl has spent, you know, making drapes with his family. But, you know, that's the dramatic beat they have to play, so they play it, and it's not terribly effective. So the wrap-up of this is just that Sarah and Danny are now a Terminator-killing team, I guess, and they're going to stop the future from happening? Is that what we're to assume? Or have they stopped it from happening? I guess they haven't stopped Legion from happening, right? It's tough to tell. I guess, they, I th no, I think they're setting out to try to stop Legion from happening. Right. They see young Grace, and Danny says, I'm not going to let her grow up to live in that future or whatever yeah and it's like at, at the end with stuff like this it's always you know a little weird because so it's important for danny to train to become a badass just in case the future still happens but they're going to try to stop it which is why i, I think it was an interesting move to kill john connor at the beginning of this because it kind of puts like those kind of questions to rest yeah i guess it's just trying to echo the last scene of the first terminator that this future is still out there and now they've got to stop it. So if this was successful, we'd be getting the equivalent of Terminator 2 Dark Fate. Darker Fate. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up Terminator Dark Fate. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it failed? So it has all the elements in place to get, I think, an audience at a different time interested in this Terminator sequel. You know, I don't think people cared enough about the franchise anymore to be like, oh, good, James Cameron is finally back. Uh, and cool, we got Tim Miller, who made Deadpool. That should work on paper. I don't think people bought that it was going to be, you know, that great of a, you know, return to form, though. And it's kind of back to just, you know, following the Terminator formula, where, you know, two things come back from the future, one to kill a person, one to try to protect that person, and lots of scenes that end with people saying, we can't stay here. It, you know, and we want to be excited about Linda Hamilton coming back too, but I just, I I, I think that audiences, like, you know, a big part of the, the, the target demographic these days, like, they grew up with Terminator movies being shitty. We care about 
Terminator 1 and 2 as things that were like part of our lifetime and you know have some nostalgia for but for everybody else they're just old movies and you know it's it's tough to have an emotional investment in trying to bring a franchise back to what it was when you know all you've experienced is you know the shitty versions of it in your lifetime i think you really nailed it with that even with linda hamilton returning even with james cameron's name being attached even with good reviews which this mostly got good reviews i think just the bad aftertaste from genesis and salvation and part three and all of the terminator films in between this and t2 made it impossible for this to be something people could really be excited about and unlike star wars there hadn't been sort of a long fallow period for people to sort of rebuild their enthusiasm for this older franchise so we weren't chomping at the bit for another one that really pretty much sums it all up and i think that unfortunately terminator is tapped as an ip i don't i'm sure they'll try to do something with it probably another tv show would be my guess something along those lines but i really feel like they need to just let terminator die it just doesn't have the sort of rich mythology and world where you can just kind of keep going with this idea and keep coming up with new stories. I think we're just tapped out on Terminator. Yeah, you could you could do another TV show, which I, I think is probably the most likely thing that they'll do with it next. It can be about anything that exists in the Terminator timeline. The, the rise of the machines or just, you know, starting out in the future where we're fighting the machines or, you know, whatever. But yeah, there's just like not much else to do with it unless you're setting Terminators back to, you know, medieval times or, you know, something like that. I would go like a Spider-Man No Way Home style Terminator multiverse movie where you go in and you pull out <laughs> elements from all of these terrible sequels <laughs> and throw them into one crazy movie. Like you could have both Linda Hamilton and Amelia Clark as dueling Sarah Connors. You could have a bunch of different versions of John Connor and all these different types of Terminators. Just do a Spider-Man No Way Home. Just throw it all into one big multiverse. And what would be the next logical thing for Skynet or Legion or Genesis or whatever you want to call them to do? Well, rip open the multiverse, obviously. That's the way they're going to destroy the world. <laughs> Just naked CG Arnold's everywhere. Good everywhere God. you look. <laughs> That's the kind of stupid I, I'll sign up for. All right, man. Well, I'm going to get enhanced by mimetic tech and hop in my time machine and save the future from any more Terminator sequels <laughs> because there is no fate but what we make. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, 
One day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.